Amen. If you're new with us, we are working our way verse by verse through the Gospel of Luke. We love to work through books of the Bible, and we have made it to probably the most popular parable of Jesus, the parable of the prodigal son or the two sons. It's my great delight to uh, work through it uh, this morning with you. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Father, thank you for this text in front of us. Thank you for the experience that we have shared as that this text describes. We were once dead, but are now alive. We pray that you would even awaken some this morning to the beauty and reality of salvation. I venture to say thousands of people have come to faith through this story, and I pray that some would do so today, even as it goes out into the internet world, however it is. We pray that you would use your word to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ, to experience the grace that we see in this text. And we pray that you would do it for your name's sake. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Ernest Hemingway wrote a short story that uh, takes place in Spain entitled The Capital of the World. And it's about a father and his teenage son, Paco. Paco was a very popular name at the time. And he begins this story by actually telling another story about a father who once came to Madrid in search of his son, Paco. The father was looking for his son, and he put an ad in the newspaper that, that read, quote, Dear Paco, meet me at Hotel Montana at noon. All is forgiven. I love you, your father. The next day, 800 boys named Paco showed up at the hotel. They were all seeking forgiveness and love from their father. And in this text today, we meet the best of fathers, don't we? Our father in heaven. And we're reminded this morning that no matter where you are spiritually in this moment, you can always come home. The Father will receive you. Amen. Last week we looked at Jesus, how he was explaining his involvement with the lost through the parable of the lost uh, sheep and the parable of the lost coin and now the parable of the lost sons. You look at church history and uh, you realize that this is, again, probably the most popular parable of Jesus um, has been the object of probably more commentary than any other parable of Jesus. It's depicted in art, uh, music, and so on. That's what this story inspires. It inspires deep reflection. It inspires poetry and praise and beautiful art. Traditionally, it's been called the parable of the prodigal son. That's the heading in my ESV. But calling it uh, the parable of the prodigal son really misses a central focus because there are two sons, right? And there is a, an elder brother and a younger brother, and I think the elder brother represents the Pharisees and scribes who are present as Jesus is telling this story. And the younger brother represents the other group, the, the sinners and the tax collectors who are known sinners, who are known for their public sin. And Jesus is directing this parable, giving hope to the tax collectors and sinners, but he's rebuking the elder brothers, the Pharisees, in hopes that they too may repent. One Presbyterian pastor calls the parable the parable of the Presbyterian son uh, to, to try to shine light on that emphasis about a person who may be religious but not uh, be regenerate, not really know Christ. So a better title I think would be something like uh, a, a compassionate father and his two very different sons. If you're a guy and you have a brother, chances are you're, you're quite a bit different. I've, sometimes it's remarkable how different Two, two brothers under the same house can be. These are two very different brothers, but they both have the same need. They need salvation. And so here's the big idea. There are two ways you can be separated from God. 
And there's only one way home, and that's through repentance. The two ways, are, you could characterize it in a number of with different terms, but I will simply call it, you could be lost in irreligion, or you can be lost in religion. Right? The younger brother is off in the far country. He is living his life in wild sin and open rebellion. The elder brother is outwardly pious, even respectable, but like the Pharisees, they were inwardly unregenerate. They had not been transformed. They were estranged from God. So you can be lost in religion, you can be lost in irreligion. And what we need is a heart made alive by Jesus Christ. To, for him to say, like the, the father says to his son, my son was dead and now is alive. So we notice the context first, the audience, verses 1 to 3, just to put that back before you, because it's important as we read the parable, I think, that Jesus is, is at the table. The tax collectors who were hated are present. The sinners, a generic term to probably represent publicly known sin, were all drawing near to hear him. And we mentioned last week that this seems to be the common practice of Jesus, that outsiders, uh, sinners, were, were drawn to, to Jesus. The other group, the Pharisees and scribes, were doing what they did very well, and that was grumble. And they're, they're, they're troubled by the fact that Jesus is keeping company with the hated tax collectors and the, uh, and the publicly known sinners. And so you see that little word in verse 3, so he told them this parable. The them are these two groups of people. And again, I think this elder brother is representing the Pharisees and scribes who are grumbling, and the younger brother in the story is representing the tax collectors and the sinners. So he tells them this parable. Now, it's important for us to remember that we are not calling people to uh, pharisaical religion. Right, to just conform to some external standards of religiosity, um, giving them some kind of false assurance. Christianity is about the dead coming to life. And uh, there are a lot of people today who are religious, like this elder brother, like these Pharisees, but do not know Jesus. There are others like the younger brother who are off in wild sin and open rebellion. And I think we're, we're meant to compare and contrast these two, even asking ourselves, which one are we like? And what, what, what tends to happen, I think, is if you're a younger brother, that would be more my tendency, for example, you have a hard time loving elder brothers. Or if you're an elder brother, you have a hard time with the younger brothers. Of course, I've married an elder brother. Um, not literally, but uh, I'm, the, the tendencies of, of the rule-keeping wife, you know? Uh, and so it is possible. I was thinking about it. I have a hard time loving elder brothers, and I was like, I married one. Uh, so I guess I, I, maybe I don't. But anyway... Um, you, you may categorize it like this, the younger brother tendencies and elder brother tendencies. Younger brothers tend to be irreligious, not interested in church stuff. Elder brothers tend to be religious. Younger brothers tend to be rule breakers. Elder brothers tend to be rule keepers. Younger brothers tend to be hedonistic. Elder brothers tend to be moralistic. Younger brothers' attitude is chill. Elder brothers' attitude is anger. Younger brothers work when they're inspired, and elder brothers overwork. Younger brothers are visible sinners. Elder brothers are invisible sinners. Younger brothers use people. Elder brothers condemn people. Younger brothers are unrighteous. Elder brothers are self-righteous. Now, which category would you be in? Maybe you would be honest and say, I think I do both all the time, <laughs> right? <laughs> and Jesus is saying, you're both in trouble. But there's hope. There's hope. And we see people meet Jesus in, in the Bible in both categories, don't we? Yeah. 
The woman at the well, we would put her in the younger brother category. She had this promiscuous lifestyle, and she comes to, to know Jesus. But Nicodemus was very religious, but he was not, he was not saved. Jesus says, you've got to be born again, pal. Uh, younger brother would be the rich man in Luke 16, uh, who spends everything he has on a self-indulgent life. But then there's a rich young ruler who's more of an elder brother who says, I don't think I've ever broken a single command. <laughs> And so you get the idea. There are three ways to live, essentially. You can live like this younger brother in wild open sin, in rebellion. You can live like an elder brother, being the rule keeper, being self-righteous, condemning people, but not have a heart made alive by Jesus. Or you can come to Jesus by faith and be made alive. Amen. And that's what we're hoping for, right? So here's scene one and scene two, and then we'll draw some, some lessons in conclusion. Scene one is the unrighteous younger brother. We can track his rebellion beginning in verse 11 as Jesus says there's a man who has two sons and the younger goes to his father and he says, give me my share of the property which is coming to me. In this day, the younger brother would have received a third of the inheritance. The elder brother would have received two thirds of the inheritance. And this guy doesn't want to wait for his father to die. He's essentially saying to him, I wish you were dead. He doesn't want his father he wants his father's stuff. And so he says, give me all that is coming to me. And this story really does bring out the nature of sin and, and all the nuances to it. And I think one of the things you see here is that one of the things it means to be lost spiritually is not just being in rebellion, but it's also not loving God. This son does not love the father. He loves the father's stuff He'd rather have his own independence. He wants to feed his flesh. He's sick of life at home. He's sick of his father. He's filled with ingratitude and selfishness. He doesn't like authority. And so he breaks his father's heart. Right? Verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had. So he's not planning on coming back. Gathers all that he has takes a journey into the far country, a great little description of what it means to be in rebellion, to live in the far country. And there he squandered his, uh, his property in reckless living. He squandered it. Squandered his wealth with wild living. Later, the text mentions prostitutes down in verse 30. This is the guy, modern day, he's just living it up. He's, he's, he's in Vegas, he's in the clubs, or maybe we would call that simply going to college, right? He's, he's just <clears throat> without self-control, without limits. He's the guy buying drinks for everyone. He's making it rain, and he's squandering everything. And he thinks this is where happiness is, right? He thinks this is where freedom is. That's not freedom, is it? This story shows us really the stupidity of sin and how sin lies to us. Like, you know, I don't need to be with my father. I need to be out. I need to go and live it up. And I think that is the human struggle that this text is pointing to. Can man be happy apart from God? No. Not ultimately. Maybe for a season, because sin, as Hebrews says, offers fleeting pleasures. There's no solid joy to it. And this is why the human heart is always been looking, if they, what you want to escape from God, so you look in other places to give you what only God can give you. Amen. That's why it's been said before, everyone who knocks on the door of a brothel is ultimately looking for God. Well, 
Augustine put it well when he says, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. This son was restless. He's going the wrong way though. He's, he's looking to the wrong things in order to satisfy that restlessness. Verse 14 tells us that he spends everything. He has already went through this whole inheritance. That inheritance that was supposed to set him up for success. He undoubtedly never thought he would run out of money. Uh, further, verse 14 tells us that a famine has also hit, and so now he's also out of food. He's hit rock bottom. There is, uh, the economy is tanked. It's one humiliation after another. And verse 15 tells us he can't find work. We know he can't find work because this is not where a Jewish boy would work with the pigs. This was uh, utterly detestable to the Jews. But this kid, he could go home and just get help. He could go home and uh, work for a respected member of the community, but instead he attaches himself to a member of the far country. A Gentile hog farmer was detestable to the Jews. Not only is he working there, but he's also eating the food that the pigs ate. They put this in modern day uh, imagination. This is a guy who needs rehab. He needs a bath. He needs a doctor. He needs a friend. He needs a job. You see verse 16, something of his isolation when it says he was long to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. No one gave him anything. So on top of all of the humiliation, this guy is alone. Reminds me of the old Eric Clapton song, Nobody Loves You When You're Down and Out. Nobody knows you when you're down and out. Here he is, down and out. He had a lot of friends when he was buying the drinks. And now the money's run out, and all of the stuff that he could do for people has run out, and now this kid has run out. I don't know if you know any younger brothers who have left for the far country recently. In the name of self-expression, or some alternative lifestyle, or to chase some fantasy, simply to just get out of the house. For some in this room, that used to be our story. I'm glad I'm not in the far country anymore. I'm glad the Lord Jesus has received me. He's given me a heavenly country. Way better than the far country. Sin never satisfies, does it? We need to know this every day to get it through our wooden head. That, that sin's ability to interest and satisfy quickly runs out. So we go to something more and more and more. Sin lies to us. It says that we're free. This kid is not free. Sin tells us that this is where the pleasure is. This kid is not finding pleasure. This is a gift to be taught this. To see this in a vivid story. To see that sin alienates us not only from God, but from people. We, we are left isolated. And so the question is, is there any hope for this young man? Is there any hope you can imagine Jesus telling this story? What do you think the Pharisees were, were saying to themselves? I bet they were ready to, to they, they, if they would have written the end of the story, it would have looked differently, huh? And I wonder what the, the sinners and tax collectors are saying. Oh, we know how this ends. That the dude's going to get beat up. He's going to go home and dad's going to do Deuteronomy on him. And, and you know, it was legally, he could, he could do that. He could punish and, and they could stone him. Is that what's going to happen? Well, notice verse 17. But when he came to himself, what a great statement. He came to himself. 
Every time I read this, I think about a college teammate I had named Chris. He had a huge goatee, baseball teammate, always had a big dip, and uh, he was pitching terribly. And so he went off into the woods, and he came back, and he said, guys, I found myself. And uh, I just remember that, like, okay. And then we watched him pitch and realized he probably should go back to the woods, you know, like. <laughs> well, this guy came to himself, for real, for real. He, he's awakened. And that's the first step to actually realize you're in a desperate condition. You, you don't want to stay there. And so one wonders, did he come to himself in the pigsty? <laughs> that would make sense. I don't know where your life was changed, where you would trace, like a pivotal moment in your spiritual journey. I was at a college FCA service. Some have come to faith in pastors' offices, church services, maybe with a parent in a bedroom. This guy's life changed in a pigsty. <laughs> He's saying to himself, what on earth am I doing here? And he begins to think about the Father's mercy. Notice how he says, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? He recognizes and recalls the fact that his father is gracious. His father is merciful. So he's driven home, I think, at the prospect of mercy. He knows what kind of man his father is. He knows what kind of character the father has. And so he begins to turn around. It's what we call repentance. And you see the repentance language that's used here in verse 18. I will arise and go to my father. And that's your first step. If you are in rebellion against God, turn to your father and go home. Get out of the, the pigsty. And he says, I have sinned. I'm a, I, I, he says, I will rise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. So there's no blame shifting. There's no excuses. If you've ever been in rebellion, you know how to cleverly make excuses. Well, if I had a flat tire or it was, you know, aliens, uh, there was something, the devil made me do it. No, he's going to own this as a confession. I have sinned, sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he's got his plan together. It's a good plan. It's a humble plan, I think. In verse 20 to 24, we see the reconciliation that happens. Again, you can imagine the tension at the table as Jesus is teaching, and now the encounter is about to happen. How will this father respond to this rebellious kid? The Pharisees want to, no doubt, see him punished, and the sinners and tax collectors are hanging on with hope. And it says in verse 20, he arose and came to his father, and while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him, and he kissed him. That's what the father did when he went home. Notice the verbs. We just worship through those verbs. The father saw him. How did he see him? Well, no doubt he was waiting on him. No doubt every time a kid came up the... Uh, uh, in, in the area, he was hoping it was his son. He was watching for him. Aren't you grateful that for, the, for the patience of God? Yeah. That he, he waited on us. He welcomed us. As I said, according to Deuteronomy 21, he could have legally killed his son. But no, it says in the text that he felt compassion. The father has compassion on sinful people. 
As Psalm 103 says, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. He wraps us up when we have nothing to say, nothing to offer, when we smell like a pig. He puts his arms around us, and that's why we sing how deep the Father's love for us. How vast, how vast, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. Not only did this father show compassion, but he ran. We may kind of overlook that, but that was not common as Jesus, in Jesus' day for men to be running. And yet here he goes, running, after his son, and he embraces his son just as he is. How many of you would have been tempted to say, hey, if you go get a bath, we'll have a talk? Or if you straighten up and fly right, I'll let you come in. No slap on the face. It's a hug. It's a hug. It's a great big hug. And the gospel is not if you behave right, you get a hug. You get the hug at the beginning. And now you live out of a, a loving relationship. You want to obey, don't you? And he kisses him. He covers him with kisses. You notice in verse 21, the father doesn't even respond to the son's speech. The guy says, Dad, will you just treat me like one of your hired servants? And all he, all he does is wrap him up and show compassion on him. He doesn't throw a fit. Instead, he wants to throw a party. Amen. He throws a party. He says, bring the best robe. Every nobleman had a robe. It was unique, ornate, highest of quality. Put the robe on my son. Put a ring, a sign of dignity and membership in the family. Put shoes on his feet, a picture of sonship. Only masters and their sons wore shoes. That's what these guys at the table were hearing Jesus say. That's what I've come to show you and to do for you. And the best part of all, especially around lunchtime, is he said, let's kill the fatted calf. A delicacy that was only used for major occasions, like the Day of Atonement. I love that when Jesus wants to throw a party, he doesn't say, let's all eat a kale salad. He's like, let's kill a, let's kill a cow, because we're about to have some meat. This is the, the generosity of our Father. Haddon Robinson put it well. With the Father, the calf is always the fatted calf. The robe is always the best robe. The joy is always unspeakable, and the peace always passes understanding. There is no grudging in God's goodness. He does not measure his goodness by drops like a druggist filling a prescription. He's extravagant in his grace, extravagant in his benevolence and in his mercy. And he calls him my son. You notice verse 24. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This is our greatest need is to be reconciled to this father. And when that takes place, Jesus says, there should be a party. There should be a party. So this is the kid's journey. He's sick of home. Then he's sick. Then he's homesick, and now he's home. Amen. And if you're not a Christian, I would just ask, do you really want to turn your back on this God? Like, where else are you going to go? Right. And why would you want to? Sure. And he will have you. Yeah. This is his disposition yes, towards sinners. It's one of compassion. Well, that leads us to scene two, the elder brother, the self-righteous Elder brother, so we enter the Pharisees now. 
in the story. The older son was in the field and he came to draw near the house and he heard music and, uh-oh, dancing. Now, if you hear dancing, they're really dancing. If you, if you, if you hear dancing, and, and this, this really will set the, the legalists off, uh, right? You were taught not to do certain things, like dancing. Now, this is not the wrong kind of dancing, to be sure. This is not a guy who's drunk with a lampshade on his head. Uh, but this is for real celebration. My son's home. He was dead and he's alive. He was lost and he's been found. But the elder brother scoffs at it, and he's basically like, how dare you do this? And that's, the, again, the attitude of legalism. Grace makes you glad. Legalism makes you mad. And so he hears about this whole situation, and he is, get this scene now, around the party, but not in the party. And that is the danger of being lost, but still being a little bit religious. Is to be around certain Christian-y things, but not to be in Christ. Now, one of the things I love, verse 28, is that the father still loves the elder brother. He was angry, the elder brother, and refused to go in. And his father, notice this, came out and entreated him. You see, the father's heart is also toward the, the Pharisee. It's, it's, again, as I mentioned earlier, you might be more of the younger brother, and you're like, I don't know how I can love these elder brothers. Well, this is what the father shows us. He goes out to both of them. He entreats him to come in, but the, the elder brother is angry. He's explosive in his rage, and he, he talks disrespectfully to his father. Look, he says, these many years I've served you. I never disobeyed your command. You never gave me a young goat. He got a cow. I didn't even get a goat. You can see this sort of relationship that he seems to have with his dad. It's more like a boss. I never disobeyed a command. It's like he's keeping score. A theology of merit. A theology of wanting to earn our way. Somewhat respectable on the outside, but inwardly needs to be transformed. Kind of like Mark Twain who once said, he was a good man in the worst sense of the word. It's that kind of thing here with this elder brother. Yeah, he was, it's, I mean, if you've got to choose between morality and immorality, you choose morality, but morality will not keep you out of hell. Amen. Right? You need Jesus to do that. And so he was a good man in that sense. Like, it was a good thing to serve his father and to do these things, but he was still lost, even though he never ran away. And again, it's the kindness of the Lord to reveal these things to us. Because I think the place where we're very self-deceived is being the elder brother. If you're in wild, open rebellion against God and you know you are, then you're, you're very well aware you need to be saved. But the danger is sort of being around the party, around the church, but not coming to faith in Jesus. And so there's more self-righteousness in verse 30 that comes out of this son when he says, But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property, were prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. How dare you be gracious to him? He said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. In other words, all is provided. You can come too. The father still deeply loves this son. He says it was fitting. It was right. It was appropriate to celebrate and be glad. For this year, brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And that's where the story ends. We don't know whether or not the elder brother went into the party, received reconciliation, it's what we call today a cliffhanger. Yes, sir. 
And I think we're called to enter into this story. Which one are we like? Have we entered in? Well, let me gather up four lessons from this story. I've already mentioned these are not new, but let me just recap them as we conclude this amazing story. This text is teaching us about the love of God. Jesus presents God as Father, and that's very significant. God isn't a lifeguard that we just cry out to when we're desperate. He's not a butler there to do our bidding, but he is our Father. Taught in the Old Testament that God is Father to the fatherless. And millions of children will go to bed tonight without a father. And Jesus paints God as Father. Maybe you've had a distant father or no father or an abusive father. And I want to say I'm sorry. And I want you to see what kind of father is presented to us in this story. This is our father. He is majestic and transcendent and holy, but he is also loving, forgiving, and near. We cry out, Abba, Father, and he hears us. And we're called to reflect this love, aren't we? You know, dim reflections of it, to be sure. But this is our calling. Be merciful, the text says, as your Father in heaven is merciful. This text is teaching about the nature of sin and the necessity of repentance. Sin is vividly expressed in this story. It's expressed with the younger brother in rebellion, selfishness, indulging of the flesh, or as the elder brother in pride and arrogance and self-righteousness. And one way home, through repentance. Thirdly, this text teaches us about salvation by grace alone. The father goes out to both sons. He entreats them. He initiates this relationship. We see grace is expressed in that there is no repayment, but simply the calling to repentance. We come out having nothing. This younger brother had nothing to offer the father. And we see grace is expressed in the fact, as Jesus is teaching this, that he is the answer and not the Pharisees. He's the answer and not the religious leaders. As you read these three stories together, the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons, you notice in the third story, there's something different, and it's that no one goes looking for the son. And in Jesus' day, this would have been the, the responsibility of the elder brother. The elder brother was to be his brother's keeper. But the elder brother doesn't go looking for the younger son in this story because the elder brother is a Pharisee. And the Pharisees are not the solution. The elder brother would have said in that day, I'll go look for him, I'll lay down my life for him. We know something of that. If you were a kid, you went to play with your, your, your brother, your mom or dad may have said something like, don't come home without your brother. You see, the elder brother should have went after the younger brother, but the good news is we have a true elder brother, Jesus Christ, Amen. who did come after us. As Hebrew says, he's not ashamed to call us brother. Jesus is not ashamed to call me brother. For God so loved the world that he didn't send a Pharisee. He sent his son. Amen. And he, he came into the far country after us yes, to rescue us, to bring us home. He brought us out of the, the pig pen of sin and stupidity and rebellion. And he's given us dignity and worth and righteousness and meaning and eternal life. And now there's no condemnation for us, only everlasting joy. As we sang last week, oh, the love that sought me. Oh, the blood that bought me. Oh, the grace. 
that brought me to the fold. And now we want to serve the Father, don't we? We don't have to serve Him. We want to. John Newton put it well when he says, Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen His beauty, are joined to part no more. Our pleasure is our duty. Our duty is our pleasure. Finally, we see the joy of salvation. C.S. Lewis said, Joy is the serious business of heaven. And let us be about that serious business. You and I, if we're in Christ, we're not lost like that little lamb. We're not lost like that coin. We're not lost like that son. We've been found. Our greatest problem has already been solved. And in times of sorrow and grief and trial and hardship and anxiety and discouragement, despair, and all the stuff that comes our way in this life, no one can ever take that away from us. There is a joy that we can always draw from, a well we can always draw from in the gospel. So we can say with Paul, even though I'm sorrowful, I'm always rejoicing. I'm always rejoicing. And soon all sorrow will end and we will enter into a banquet of joy. And we will celebrate with all of heaven. We will celebrate with rescued elder brothers and rescued younger brothers who've come to faith in Jesus Christ from every people, tribe, language, and nation. So may we be marked by this kind of gospel joy that leads to singing and might even lead to dancing if we allow it to penetrate our hearts. Let's thank the Lord for this today. Father, we thank you for this remarkable story, unforgettable story. We thank you that it's not just printed words on a page, but it's your inspired word. We thank you for preserving it through the centuries, for bringing people to faith and worship through it. And even now, we pray that you would deepen our gratitude to our Father in heaven for all that he has done for us through Jesus Christ and that he would receive glory from our lives. Father, we want to be marked as, as people of joy. We want to be marked as people who reflect our Father in heaven. As your word says, be imitators of God as beloved children. And we pray that you would give us your kind of heart for this lost world. And even now, as we take the table, I pray that you would cause us to reflect on these things and be transformed. And we pray it in Christ's good name. Amen.